Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome John Flavin, founder and CEO at Portal Innovations to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, John. I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Amit Hamdi. Let's kick things off. John, can you share a brief intro with us? Founder and CEO of Portal Innovations, a very focused life sciences venture development engine that is investing crafted capital into emerging life sciences companies here in the uh, central U.S. region. We're delivering three forms of capital, seed capital, physical capital in the form of fully equipped laboratory space, and then knowledge capital and network to build transformative life sciences companies. I've spent my career in the field, trained in finance, but right out of college, started uh, a company in the biotech space. We ultimately took that company public, did it again. And then in the last decade, have focused my energies toward building uh, a portfolio uh, of opportunities by virtue of civic incubators, first co-founding a platform called Matter that brought together for the first time the Chicago life science ecosystem, small companies, large companies, entrepreneurs, and academia, and then went down to the University of Chicago to start lead and scale the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, where I had the pleasure of working with some remarkable faculty and students that now have a place where they can start and grow companies in the life sciences arena. I had the pleasure of interacting with my co-founder at Pixis Oncology, Tom Gajewski, who's a well-known cancer immunologist, and, and left the university to form Pixis and then ultimately started the platform at Portal where we're putting together that crafted capital platform. But it's a journey. There's a lot of up and downs along the path but I've shared some of the high points of that journey with you so far. Thanks for that wonderful introduction, John. And as you said, yes, it definitely is a journey and perhaps maybe connecting the dots for us here for our audience. What, what's been that North Star, uh, that common thread tying all your work together here? Well, being a, a person who's always worked at the nexus of science, but not being a scientist myself, I've always looked at my role is identifying good ideas with good people behind those ideas and trying to find a, a pathway for those ideas to ultimately make it into the marketplace. I decided to focus my career in life sciences. I was influenced heavily by my brother, Mike, 12 years older than I am, but went on to get his PhD in medicinal chemistry. And he, as a scientist, was really interested in identifying and, and bringing new drugs to the marketplace. 
I was really interested in that same goal, but maybe with a mindset around understanding the building blocks to bring great science to market involve equal sophistication and focus around financial resources to get that idea to the marketplace. So I would say my North Star has been taking the long view toward ultimately bringing ideas that can help people to the marketplace and trying to use my expertise, skills, background, and certain level of patience and impatience at the same time to try to bring these great ideas to life. My hope is that I have helped move the needle in helping people with addressing illnesses and disease. Love that North Star and absolutely resonates with what we do here at BIOS, John. And a question that we love to ask is a common theme throughout these episodes comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. I think as we're forward-looking today in this episode, it'd be great to set some context. Dennis says, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? To me, that means taking the long view, really looking out over the course of the next half century and trying to imagine what are the transformative things that the world will experience that will put the world in a position where the, 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 the average lifestyle is fundamentally different from our own experience today. And I think we can see over the course of the last century, that's certainly you know been the case with the innovations that have propelled us forward into our current environment. And computing being a big aspect of all the impacts that have transformed the world into the way we work today. And I think if you look at the, the inventing the future and the building blocks we have to work with that invent the future for the world, computing and its application to materials, I think will be how things reassemble over the course of the next half century. And clearly applying computational platforms toward the discovery of new biologies that will help cure currently incurable diseases, particularly the next frontier in disease of the brain, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, but also continuing to go after diseases like cancer and inflammation. And as the world becomes reinvented, my vision for how you're leveraging computing, and, and even now in this day and age, quantum and its a- application through computing to how we discover new medicines and how we improve um, the health of patients worldwide, I think you're going to find that it's going to become more personalized. So the in, inventing the future is a lot more individualized. I think the one size fits all for any product, those days I think will begin to fade to the background. And you're going to see the transformational innovation happen where more and more of these inventions will go toward the self, toward the individual. My last end note on that then would be inventing the future means using the building blocks of today. And I think most innovation always happens and I think will happen again in this next half century in the nexus between different disciplines, in this case, computing and its power combined with materials, synthetic biology, mRNA, CRISPR technologies, all of these things. And and of course, 
my world tends to revolve uh, around biology and, and medicine. But all of these, the, that convergence of computing and materials has applications in climate change, in energy, in all of these other things that I think will set the stage for what, what a future world looks like 50 to 100 years out. Thanks for that great background, John, and excited to have you get on the episode today. I'll pass off to Hamdi to guide us through our first topic, investment philosophy in biotech ecosystem building. Thank you, Chaz, and a pleasure to speak with you, John. So last spring, you kicked off Portal Innovations as a seed capital fund with fully equipped wet lab space for portfolio companies. Can you give us a bit more background on Portal and what your investment focus is? When I launched Portal Innovations, I really was looking at an unmet market need in the region where I focused my career. Having worked around the globe with some very innovative people in very collaborative ecosystems, I feel like my journey led me to many different observations that I felt could be applied here in my hometown of Chicago. One of the things that I really wanted to do as I developed my career, having, I would say, more of a serial pathway for the first couple of decades of my career, my goal was to try to build things in parallel, be more of a parallel entrepreneur. And, and to do that in Chicago and build a portfolio, the raw ingredients to do that were not here. And one of those key ingredients is specialized laboratory space where entrepreneurs who are working on biotechnology companies can actually do their work. I mean, this is the kind of work that you can't do in your bathtub at home or in your garage. And so having the right environment in place is, is really important. So what I felt I could bring to the next generation of entrepreneurs in this region was my own personal experience and assembly skills of what it takes to go from academic idea to company formation, to company scaling, and ultimately building great companies that develop products for patients. And, and also, again, going back to my, my own skills in, in finance, try to also you know, generate a sustainable business and, and return an investment in that process. The kinds of tools I felt I could uniquely bring were my ability to build and manage laboratories, my knowledge of innovators in the ecosystem. And by the way, there are a lot more of those innovators thanks to a lot of investments that the universities have made into attracting and retaining very talented applied scientists with increasingly commercial potential ideas. So Portal was formed to bring together then seed capital. You need cash to get going, but cash alone is not going to move the needle. You need cash, you need space, and you need the assembly skills. So in many ways, Portal is a manifestation of my experience. And then I was fortunate then in launching Portal to build just a world-class team that shares those same goals and attributes to try to bring these assets in a bundled fashion to entrepreneurs and companies developing life-saving treatments for patients. Love how you're harnessing seed capital, real estate, and hard skills to enable parallel entrepreneurship. And in this time, you started cultivating several new companies, such as Cluster Bio, Grove Biopharma, and to close out 2021, uh, Reos. What's the common thread amongst your portfolio and what you're looking towards? Well, one of the things we're really trying to establish here is really identifying academic faculty that we think are developing transformative technologies and can do it on a repeating basis. 
So if you look at highly sustained ecosystems in life sciences like Boston or the Bay Area, you'll find a lot of faculty innovators that are repeaters. They spin off many companies and many ideas. So what, we, what we're doing at Portal is first and foremost, establishing a very strong relationship with the highest performing high pedigree faculty in this region, develop a relationship so that not only are we effective at helping them build company number one, but anticipating that there'll be a company number two and a company number three. So being a first stop for those very promising high pedigree faculty is what, what we define ourselves as. And on the back end, we're establishing a world-class set of partners, syndicate investors that trust us, that want to see opportunities and expect the best opportunities to be fueled through the portal engine. And, and so in, in a way, we're managing a two-sided market in that respect. We're establishing strong and high probability successful companies based on the selection that we have with the, the uh, innovators that we're working with. And then on the back end, knowing our market, understanding as we evaluate and invest in companies, what are those companies that will likely find partners that can help us continue to finance and ultimately bring through many stages of development, these companies to the marketplace. And we know if we're successful doing that, on the one end, we'll get great faculty coming back to us with their next companies. And on the other end, we'll continue to develop and, and generate repeat opportunities with our investor syndicate that relies on us for these great opportunities. So all of our diligence relies on building around great technologies, great teams, but looking at the long view. When we look at the companies we've invested in so far, they all have those attributes. You mentioned Rayos, really excited to be investing in Rayos. John Rogers is a prolific inventor, serial academic entrepreneur that we think this technology can have an impact in the marketplace, leveraging his expertise in flexible electronics. Going after hydrocephalus as a first indication, we think is a very smart path into the marketplace. Partnering with great entrepreneurs like Annalisa Samara, a repeater entrepreneur that we know can build great teams and has expertise in, in med tech and, and biopharma. It was an obvious investment for us as we continue to support them as they continue to move forward. As you look at Closer Bio, same attributes. Jeff Hubble, repeater entrepreneur, companies like Enokion. It's not his first rodeo. But then partnering with great scientists and co-founders like Kathy Nagler, world-class leaders, in her case, an immunologist, partnering there with the material scientist Jeff Hubble is a great way to look at bringing new insights from the microbiome to impact novel drugs that can impact diseases of the gut like colitis and food allergies. And then you mentioned Grove, really excited about leading their $5 million seed round, partnered very closely with Nathan Janesh, a professor out of uh, Northwestern that operates at the interface between medicinal chemistry, material science, and bioengineering. That's where the innovation happens. And so with great technology to begin with, and then working closely with repeater entrepreneurs with world-class pedigree like Jeff Duick as CEO, that was an obvious choice for us to get behind. And, and we've are really excited about you know where that company can go and looking at the early data, it looks very promising. So 
That gives you a little insight around our methodology, what we look for, why we chose, among others, those companies to invest in. So how do you, as both an investor and entrepreneur, think about building a sustainable biotech ecosystem? Building a sustainable biotech ecosystem revolves around a number of factors. I think some of the raw ingredients that are necessary at the, at the input level include having strong academic and medical center anchors in that particular geography, having a strong and repeatable talent pool, and talent will be required at many stages of company formation and will require great amounts of diversity associated with building a biotechnology company over the long term. So it's scientific expertise, it's technical expertise, it's regulatory, it's clinical, but it's business, it's finance, it's seasoned managerial expertise. Having a hub that and a, and a geography that is growing organically, that type of talent, but also is an attractive enough location where you can acquire talent from other locations to be in that particular hub is also a necessary ingredient. I think a fuel for uh, a sustainable biotech hub is government NIH grant funding. As you look at sustainable biotech ecosystems like Boston and San Francisco and San Diego, they certainly have all the attributes that I've mentioned, but they also have a, a core pipeline of grants being invested into the academic institutions around commercializable ideas. So that's another thing that you have to look for. And in fact, we're developing a platform at Portal called the Portal Innovation Index, where we're using inputs to look at number of patent filings, number of SBIR grants, paper citations, to begin to identify almost with data analytics and machine learning, building a database where we can uh, predict that next emerging John Rogers that is going to be the emerging successful innovator in, in a given region. And so inputs like patents, and, and, and I would say also having a live, work, play environment. As we see talent, they like to be in places where they can live, work, and play, where they see others like them, that they feel a sense of camaraderie. So much of that people vibe is a really important piece of what is the glue of an ecosystem. So I think those are some really important raw elements that have to happen, I think, at the organic level. I think if you look at Chicago and other cities with similar attributes, what I think is really interesting is over the course of the past decade, universities like University of Chicago, Northwestern, UIC, Urbana-Champaign, Wisconsin, et cetera, have all invested very heavily into their innovation architecture, and they've recruited a new type of faculty member. So I think this is a key ingredient that's often overlooked. Having at the core of a phenotype of faculty that looks a lot like the typical Stanford or MIT faculty member, you're starting to see a lot of those types of <clears throat> individuals show up in the region by virtue of the investments that the university have made to attract those individuals. So I think you can't have a great ecosystem if you don't have great repeater innovators like that, that are there. And then lastly, you do need capital. And I think there you do need a macro environment that can support the growth of ecosystems that are early and fragile in nature, but have a lot of upside potential and can, can become sustainable over time. So one venture firm alone can't lift an ecosystem, 
but one platform can catalyze and be the scaffold around which capital can aggregate, rally around. And over time, like in places like Philadelphia, where you see it become you know, a, a really hot spot for gene and cell therapy, for example, one faculty member can change the, the footprint and the impact of the entire ecosystem. And so I think those are some of the key features, but I, I, I think creating the conditions where the Jim Wilsons and Bob Langers and the John Rogers and, and Milan Murchises want to be, that to me drives everything. Prior to Portal, you were working on diversifying translational opportunities for academic research as head of the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Chicago. What do you believe is the role of academic innovation in maintaining such an ecosystem? It's very strategic for universities, and I'm encouraged by a sea change at the university president level as universities evolve their business model. And you think about kind of how economics are impacting the way that top research institutions are looking at their future and maintaining, if not growing, their eminence. Their eminence really is all uh, prefaced on their ability to attract and retain the best faculty and students as well. But at the faculty level, an increased number of faculty are not satisfied with just publishing their work and doing basic science. They want to take it one step further. They want to create impact. And impact for faculty really means they'd like to see their idea, their early idea, help a patient. And, and they want to be very active then in take an active role in seeing their idea create impact. And they often see creating a company as a pathway or a vehicle to doing that. And so universities, I think, are in a position where they can both contribute to the ecosystems that they have the privilege of working within, but they also have the benefit of how that allows them to attract and retain faculty that allow them to evolve their business model, keeping in mind that these faculty are able to help position um, the university for an increased number of grants as more grants are being funded on the condition that the ideas that are being invested in by the government have some translational component. It's in the university's interest to have people that have a translational mindset at the faculty level. And as those ideas mature and grow, the opportunity to see students and graduate students take their career in a direction that may go outside of academia, company creation is a key part of why that type of academic entrepreneur that's being recruited in is, is really critical to the lifeblood of the future of a university. And the revenue opportunity and the economic impact that one faculty member can have, not only with a company that could offer sponsored research dollars, the translational grants that would go with the, the idea and the patents that could form, the royalty returns, the equity returns that would go on the company that if, if those companies and products succeed. And then lastly, philanthropy. More philanthropists are interested in translational research, not just basic science. And so really, when you look at what we were doing in particular at the Polsky Center, it was to try to create a platform 
that was really a value creation engine for the University of Chicago that set the university on a course where in many ways changed the culture to be less inwardly focused and more outwardly focused and engaged. And by being engaged, more inviting to the community, the neighborhood, the city, and entrepreneurial faculty. And so I think that what I think we built at the Polsky Center that I'm really proud of is we moved the needle substantially around the innovation mindset, the entrepreneurship mindset, coupling the strong program at Booth in entrepreneurship and innovation and connecting it to what was happening across campus in the medical center, in the biological sciences, in the chemistry department, and even the national labs that it manages, Argonne and Fermilab. What Polsky represents is a front door to the university that welcomes the community in, that opens up pathways for researchers, students, and staff to be able to innovate and create and, and invent the future, if you will. Taking a look at the geography of your work, you've done a lot of this outside of Boston and the Bay Area, the historically two hotspots of biotech innovation that you've mentioned earlier. So could you speak a little bit to the evolution of biotech ecosystems in Chicago in particular, as well as kind of broadly across the country? I think you got to take a step back and look at the dynamics that are happening in the capital markets, in particular because of COVID, the elevation of biopharma and life science innovation. There's record levels of investor capital that has gone in to dedicated life sciences venture funds. Upwards of $38 billion raised in the last two years, dwarfing any other similar time frame. just to give the listeners some sense of how historic and how substantial those investment pools have become. Now, as that capital has come in, and also against a backdrop where it's been a long, full run for the public biotechnology marketplace up until recently, where companies that had opportunities to tap the public markets were able to do so in a fashion on a regular basis that provided exits and liquidity for investors that were supporting those companies. So it's a high-functioning capital markets ecosystem. The, bio, the public markets have pulled back somewhat and probably will be somewhat muted when compared to the last two years, but still very strong going forward. I don't see any stoppage or a shutdown of the window of opportunities for the foreseeable future in the public biotechnology marketplace. Perhaps changes in valuation expectations, corrections on that front, but the, the markets are open. Now, if you look at that backdrop and this huge bolus of capital that's been raised in these dedicated funds, more and more of that money is interested in getting engaged in really early stage opportunities. In fact, seed to series A is the greatest value inflection point <clears throat> that's seen with regards to step-ups in valuation. SVB did a report and that number sits around two times from seed to series A. More importantly, a lot of these investors that historically invested in later stage deals, Series B and beyond, have no choice now but to be investing at the at least Series A level so they can get into the cap table. Meaning if they don't participate early, they can't get in late and they, their business models become flawed downstream. And so historically late stage investors now have an interest in early stage opportunities. And why is this happening? A big driver for this is Science is moving rapidly back to this whole, again, convergence and applying computing to life sciences, 
Look at some of the breakthroughs that we've seen that are now really accelerating after incubating for many years coming out of the Human Genome Project. We're now seeing a lot of real-world applications for understanding human biology at the genetic level. And with that occurring, science is moving faster. Outcomes are improving for patients. <clears throat> Diseases that were once unthinkable with regards to being able to uh, affect in a positive way are now open opportunities. And with those greater outcomes, there are liquidity events happening sooner in the cycle. Again, oftentimes from Series A through IPO, that exit can happen in three years or four years. And with that type of cycle, it's inviting a lot more investors into the biotech investor universe. Why is this important for ecosystems that are not Boston and San Francisco? The rate limiting variable for biotech innovation is not and will not be capital for the foreseeable future. It will be access to specialized talent pools that have access to specialized laboratory space in communities that they want to be a part of. The amount of space, for example, in Boston, roughly 30 million square feet of wet labs, is fully utilized. You can't build lab space fast enough. You can't hire scientists and professionals fast enough, even if you're public, even if you've just raised $150 million Series B round or a massive $100 million Series A round. So with that as a backdrop, there will be a need to be investing in opportunities in ecosystems that have similar attributes at the raw input level to what we see in Boston and the Bay Area, but are, are still early in their ecosystem build cycles. So that's really what Chicago represents. And so <clears throat> that's why you're seeing so much investment into life sciences, real estate, and the nexus then to accessing opportunities to grow and scale companies in markets that are not Boston and San Francisco. Clearly, those cities will continue to grow and develop as they are really the, the core drivers for the global biotech universe. And having connections and wormholes into Boston and San Francisco are required of any ecosystem in alternate geographies. But I do think that cities like Chicago and others that have similar attributes like Atlanta, Houston, Nashville, LA, Seattle, are really in the next 10 years, will represent the opportunity to facilitate and fuel the distributed biotech company of the future. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Let's drill down into real estate as one type of critical capital needed, especially for the life science venture ecosystem. So what role does the real estate industry play in supporting this evolution? And how are real estate challenges overlooked in establishing biotech hubs? Well, life sciences real estate is, it's a very specialized asset class from a real estate perspective. 
And because of the substantial capital investments required into the base building to support a wet laboratory environment where chemists and biologists can work at hoods and BSL-2 hoods and, and organic chemistry, the infrastructure required to support that type of work in HVAC and electrical are, are substantially higher than just a commercial office building. So technically, building a life sciences building is more involved and the risks are, are higher. Having said that, the, the requirements uh, and the relationship between you know, biotech investing and biotech entrepreneurship are inextricably linked because the space is supposed so specialized. And if you're, if you're developing a CRISPR technology, if you're needing to pipette solutions and, and plasmids, you're going to need to be in an environment that supports that. So there's so much overlap and interaction between real estate, capital, and companies. And because you need, you need that real estate to be able to start, grow, and scale a company. I think what's happening here now recently is because of the COVID effects on commercial buildings and the drive to remote working during the pandemic and its implications on the future of work, that along with the visibility around the opportunity and growth in the life science industry that I talked about in my, in my earlier comments, are fueling um, a new appetite to uh, build life sciences laboratories given the expected demand over the course of the next decade. And so there's a whole new group of investors and developers that are fueling the build out of even speculative spaces in markets, knowing that the demand is going to be there for that specialized space. So I think that back to the what makes a sustainable biotech ecosystem, if you don't have that specialized real estate and laboratory space, then you, you really will continue to be a chief exporter of intellectual property and talent. You can start things, get things going in the academic setting, but you, you, you need the infrastructure to continue to grow and scale and house those opportunities in, in the given locale. So real estate's critical. Now, real estate also works in an environment, a, reg, a regulated environment. There are codes. So it takes time to get permits to build a life sciences building, more so perhaps than a commercial office building. So it's a lot more complicated, but it's really exciting to see the enormous investments being made in the marketplace by incumbents like Alexandria, but, but newcomers as well, like, like Longfellow and, and, and others, and, and certainly closer to home, Trammell Crow, establishing and really being aggressive, scaling in many different markets. So really interesting to watch, but the bet they're making is, I, I think, a sound one with regards to this, this distributed model that I think will occur over the course of the next decade, and real estate will come, will have to work hand in glove with the innovation ecosystems that need their presence. And it makes me wonder a, a bit more as to what resources have been underrated to date so far in maintaining a biotech community. You hear stories about plenty of facilities going up and they, they get some amount of catch up, but they're not quite growing as fast as you've been. A life sciences building, I, I like to think about it really as the hardware, but I think Equally important in life sciences real estate is recognition that 
software is equally important. And what I mean by software is its ecosystem, its people, its companies, its the understanding of the of the all the constituents that make up an ecosystem from service providers, CROs, as well as academic institutions, large companies, corporate venture groups, early stage investors, late stage investors. One of the things that I think has been interesting, again, back to that macro market trend, is coinciding with Chicago's organic growth, given some of those investments I described and the way the the, the, the assets have build, been building substantially to now meet up with this global capital markets environment that's fueling this growth. I would say that it's now favoring early stage towns. Chicago, I would say the pendulum is swinging from historically late stage town, private equity driven, specialty pharma type companies coming out of commercial operations like Baxter and Avid and, and Cyril in the past. Now the pendulum is swinging to early stage. And so it's casting a spotlight on the huge engine that's been building over time of the, of the innovation that's now being unleashed and being exposed in places like Chicago and around the region. And I think that our, our growth is the, is, is the coupling of those two things. It's been the matching of the organic investments with the macro capital markets trends that, that are occurring. And, and I think that alongside of that is certainly with Portal, we're, we're hyper careful about even our micro level geography of where we're operating. Being in a live, work, play neighborhood like Fulton Market and where we are kind of non-denominational to the rest of the academic landscape here in the center of the city matters. Where you're at in a given geography makes a difference as well. So I think we've benefited from a few of those things. And that will be part of our criteria as we look to take the model to other markets to really be careful around picking the right locations, even within those geographies that we think can grow and scale. And I want to leap off the point that you brought up of more early stage ventures being built up locally. So let's take a moment to look at Pyxis and how that prompted Portal. The first successful antibody drug conjugate or ADC clinical trial occurred almost 40 years ago in 1983. And while a wave of new ADC advancements occurred in the 80s and 90s, it seems we're at the start of a new ADC revolution. So what changed in the interaction between academia and industry to help ideate and create a venture like Pixis? I'm really excited about Pixis Oncology, and it was the impetus for leaving the Polsky Center and starting uh, Pixis a few years ago with uh, my friend and colleague, Tom Gajewski, to, to start that company to leverage Tom's years of experience uh, and expertise in understanding how we can use the immune system and oncogenes as biological targets as the next wave of addressing hard to treat cancers. The, the, if you look at the evolution of immuno-oncology, the work of Jim Allison and others, including Tom, led to the checkpoint inhibitors, which have had transformative outcomes and impacts on many patients and cancer. But the work is undone. There's so much more that needs to be done to identify new ways to treat patients that don't respond to those types of treatments. So in so many ways, Pixis was formed to leverage the immune system 
to go after novel targets beyond the checkpoint inhibitors. In building that company with uh, world-class partners like Longwood Fund, Leaps by Bayer, Agent Capital, and Ibsen, we had really the chance to build out a world-class team. We're able to build out a world-class platform of biological targets to begin with to get Pixis started, but then hiring Lara Sullivan as our CEO really sets the stage to use her skills to then continue to build out the team and the platform. That led to the opportunity and the strategy that Lara led to acquire assets in the ADC arena to ultimately position Pixis to build a company with multiple opportunities that are very synergistic to go after difficult to treat cancers and leveraging the later stage opportunities in the ADCs and recognizing that the long-term application for ADC technology will likely include a immuno-oncology asset like the ones that we're developing in our pipeline. It made perfect scientific sense to continue to kind of springboard into moving the entire IO and ADC platform forward. So I really give Lara and the team credit for seeing the opportunity to continue to build a very strong portfolio of multimodality assets, all going after difficult to treat cancers. And what an exciting ride it's been, especially for Pixis. The team saw a turbocharged timeline from ideation in what, about 2018 to incorporation, funding, partnerships, and ultimately an IPO in October 2021. As an investor and entrepreneur, how has this investment and growth strategy changed in the life science sector? Well, I think we are seeing, due to some of the scientific breakthroughs, we're seeing the faster opportunities with earlier liquidity events for companies in certain cases, in certain therapeutic areas, exits through M&A happening at or, or before uh, the clinic. And so we're seeing shorter start to exit timeframes being made available to private and public company investors. And I think that that has then shortened the average timetable to from, from seed to IPO or M&A, oftentimes now between three and four years. And that's been somewhat regularized here in the last 24 months. I think that in certain therapeutic areas, in certain modalities, that trend will continue. I think focusing on those high value areas will be certainly part of our investment criteria at Portal as we look at what are those particular classes of modalities or therapeutic areas that we think have those fast start to exit opportunities as we make investments across our portfolio. So each investment that we're making, we're asking the question, do we think that by investing now at the seed level, that we can see a company like this that we're investing in along the lines of what we saw in Pixis? Do we see the opportunity that success could also include getting to the public markets in three to four years or an M&A outcome in a similar timeframe? It's part of the investment criteria that we look at in making our investment calls. As you've mentioned in other interviews, 
Pixis was originally launched out of UChicago, but the team ultimately moved to Boston with its investment and growth because there's no lab space in Chicago to further develop the technology. So how will you and Portal Innovations help create and grow the next Pixis here in Chicago? That's right. And I think that there's been a, a, a rapid development within, as I've described, the, the Chicago ecosystem that is now being more capable to fully start, build, and scale a Pixis. The, the ecosystem wasn't ready for it, and we made the right decision to start, build it, and scale it in Boston. But in, in looking at the future for where I wanted to continue to leverage my skills, my knowledge, and seeing how our ecosystem has changed and using these new tools of seed capital and fully equipped lab space, I wanted the opportunity to, to build the next sets of Pixuses here. And, and that's why I often joke with, with Tom, not so jokingly, that the, the, the next company that he and I can work on together can be built here. He shares those aspirations. And so I think that it, it's now becoming possible to do that with, with Portal. And of course, Portal is the beginning. We are a facilitator, we're a scaffold. And we, we will likely see with our success, others moving into the market. And that's all very good because we'll want to see the rising tide lift all boats. And that creates the, the fuel for that sustainable, the word sustainable in a sustainable ecosystem. Will Portal Innovations attract ideas and grow ventures from other ecosystems to Chicago, you envision? We definitely will see particularly regional opportunities that you know, are coming out of Big Ten universities, but that see an opportunity to grow and scale in, in Chicago. We're already seeing that happen as we look at our current pipeline of prospective investments. And so I think we'll, we'll see that grow and flourish here in Chicago. And we are ready for that. Have, we're fully utilized in our 15,000 square feet in, in Fulton Labs, but we are adding another 35,000 square feet of awesome, beautiful, state-of-the-art laboratories. Our mantra is scientists are people too, so they get beautiful views of the city. Four-star chefs at ground level at, on Randolph Street, creating that environment, back to what I was talking about before. And so I think those are the things that we see as allowing us to attract from other parts of the region, talent, teams, technologies. And, and I think that as we look to grow, we want to, we, we want to offer authenticity in other markets that are not Chicago, where we can bring a local farmer's market feel using our experience in Chicago in other ecosystems that resemble Chicago that are very early stage in nature, but have the same types of raw inputs. So I think we'll see a blend of really scaling portal by bringing talent in from around the region that, that Chicago has as a global city, the ability to grow and scale. And we have at the micro level with our resources here as well. But then in addition, build other similar local platforms and other markets that can connect to the Chicago flagship to continue to uh, facilitate growth within each of the markets that we support. Wonderful to have you on the show here. A few closing questions we love to ask our guests to finish things off. What would you say are the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years, if you can paint a vision for us here? 
in, in my mind, I'm probably a little too focused here, but just answering your question directly, I think grand challenge we have before us is conquering diseases of the brain. And we have within us now tools, uh, a level of understand, know-how to be able to go and tackle grand challenges that include diseases of the brain like Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative diseases, Huntington's, Parkinson's, epilepsy. All of these types of uh, CNS areas to me are the grand challenges that, that we need to, to be focused on for the future. Obviously, these are very complicated. That's why they're difficult to, to tackle and conquer. This is where the full power of, of computing and its nexus to the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, uh, all converging will, I think, help us resolve and, and meet those grand challenges. We've all, I'm sure, been affected by loved ones or people we know that have experienced these types of diseases, and they're incredibly frustrating, and they end lives far too soon. The impact that we can make in solving grand challenges with disease of the brain, I think, have far-reaching implications for human health well into the future. And to build on those challenges, John, help us realize that vision when we jump forward now 30 years and hopefully some of these challenges are eventually addressed. Describe biotech in 2050. Where will we be then? I think it's I think biotech is gonna be it's gonna be miniaturized back to kind of that inventing the future and what the future looks like as it relates to life sciences and medicine. I th- I think it's gonna be back to the future, uh, back to the future in the sense that it's back to the individual, but back to the individual in a very powerful, personalized way, understanding at the genetic level what, what the underlying uh, pathology is with a patient and advances in science to be able to treat those patients. And over time, preventative tools that allow us to live healthier lives. So I think you'll see a lot more integration of understanding through diagnostics, how to lead healthier lives. But once a disease is on set, the ability to treat patients at the, at the personal level is going to, I think, create new opportunities and new challenges that will, will cause the venture community to look a lot different in 10, 20, 30 years. I believe venture, venture firms are going to need to be attached to labs, for example. That's a scarce resource that I think will continue to be potentially integrated into the core skill set of venture investors. Does a venture firm and its application of a lab tool and technology begin to look more like a company today? And how are you going to parcel out and treat at the patient level in a more systemized fashion, in a scalable way? The last century of pharma was a, a good business model in the sense that if you could establish a treatment that generally was, and I'm not trying to oversimplify this, one size fits all. You can build a sales force, you can build a regulatory team, a product development team that is very scalable in nature. The the future of science will allow personalized treatments, again, at the the genetic and metabolic level. If we're going to do that, what's a delivery method and what are the new business models that are going to be functional to be able to deliver a, a personalized medicine with life-saving treatments or preventative health measures, for that matter, at the individual level. That, I think, is both the opportunity 
and the challenge. It's been a fantastic episode today, John. Any closing thoughts you'd love to share with our audience? No, I think it's a really an exciting time for biotechnology, entrepreneurship, and innovation with the convergence of so many different disciplines within science, as I mentioned, physics, material science, nano, biology. It's really cool to watch not only the science come together, but the people behind the science start to create new innovations that I think are going to have transformative and positive impacts on our, hopefully on our generation and our, our children's generation and, and beyond as well. I'm really excited and bullish on the opportunities that I think exist in this, what I've described as this distributed biotechnology company in the future, operating in multiple ecosystems and eventually 30, 50 years out at the individual level. So it's really been a pleasure speaking with both of you. And I really am, am, am honored to be part of the conversation. Thanks again, John. And we've touched on a lot of fun topics today and your work at Portal, Pixis Oncology, and many other endeavors you've been a part of over the years. How can our audience learn more about your work? Send me an email, john.plavin at portalinnovations.com. You can check out our website at portalinnovations.com. I just started up a podcast called Lab Rats to Unicorns. They have their own website as well, where I have the opportunity to interview people behind the innovations and try to demystify science and biotech entrepreneurship to welcome a broader set of talent that may not otherwise be thinking about a pathway for their career in biotechnology. Wonderful. And hope to continue collaborations between our podcast and host you again soon. John, thanks again for joining us today. Look forward to investing further with you, Chaz and Alex and the entire team. And it's a, it's a pleasure working with you. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.